Hello, I'm Shane Kilkelly. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to the second episode of General Intellect Unit, the podcast of the cybernetic Marxists. And this week, or I suppose this fortnight, we're um, going to be talking about a, a book called Four Futures by Peter Fraze. Um, pretty cool little book. It was published in October of 2016, and it was sort of a uh, like a follow-on or an expansion of a an article uh, Fraze had wrote for Jacobin magazine in 2011. Is that is that about it? That's about that's the right details. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I, I remember this article was big, kind of a big uh, influence on me when it first uh, came out in 2011. Um, it was just that schematism that he comes up with in the book of these four futures was really um, attractive and interesting. Um, so, yeah, I, I never had uh, read the book before uh, this uh, opportunity. Uh, but uh, definitely appreciated the article when it first came out. Yeah, that's cool because like um, I miss I missed the article when it came out because uh, I just wasn't reading Jackman at the time. Um, but I, I picked up the book I think when it launched. So like, and it was it was published uh, around this time last year. Um, and it's kind of funny because like when I was when we were like a month ago trying to think about putting this show together, uh, I didn't quite realize it at the time. But this this book, I think, is very much foundational to our whole sort of way of thinking about the the future that or the possibilities of the future that are coming down the road and how technology uh, and politics kind of relate to that. Um, and like, it, it, I don't think it's a coincidence that we kind of very quickly settled on doing a, a talk through of this book for the first episode, for the first real episode of the show. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this book, it a lot of it is just kind of quoting various uh, futurists or um, social critics uh, or even um, like science fiction authors. Uh, but what's really useful about it is just that uh, schema that he produces um, and just having some categories to think with um, are, are, you know, that's that's very powerful and, and interesting. Um, and so I, I think it is a very good place to start. Yeah, definitely. And I think the, the kind of the usefulness of the schema is that it, it, it sort of drills home this point that uh, the future isn't inevitable. There, there, isn't, there isn't just one linear timeline that we advance on and then we're inevitably going to end up in um, a particular kind of vision of the future. Because that's something I kind of see a lot of from uh, the kind of techie libertarian kind of crowd, this kind of idea of like scientific determinism. That, uh, and it, it even gets brought up in relation to things like uh, privacy and such with relation to like internet surveillance and things. And the, the kind of pushback is usually that, oh, it's just inevitable. Like it's it's inevitable that you'll end up under surveillance by Google specifically, you know, um, as, right, a, as right. if there's just no possibility at all. Naturalizing for, these things. Yeah, um, to, as if yeah. it's a totally natural a force of nature that isn't in any way related to political or social choices. Um yeah, which I think we mentioned in the first episode is kind of a nonsensical way to think. Um, you know, the te technology sets up the base on which uh, social change and stuff plays out. It doesn't make the change inevitable. Um, yeah. Um, so I suppose we probably get into the kind of general themes of the book. Um, the kind of the introduction opens up with, I think, quite a, a fun kind of little line. And I quote, it's two specters are haunting Earth in the 21st century, the specters of ecological catastrophe and automation. 
<laughs> which I think is really fantastic. And Frey's kind of sets it up initially that there's these two factors. Like we're seeing um, it, it recently, we just passed like 400 parts per million of atmospheric carbon dioxide. Um, we're seeing like increased sea uh, acidification, uh, in, uh, declining ice in the, the caps and such. Um, more drought and famine, more extreme storm events. But we're also seeing um, breakthroughs in technology in the context of like high unemployment, stagnant wages, a kind of like economy that's been depressed for a decade now, um, and a general sort of air of anxiety around around automation, but like more more generally the just the future of work and the future of like what what we sort of ordinary proletarian kind of people are, are going to do with ourselves in when the robots take over uh yeah i mean there's there's a real fear of like insecurity of work and and way of life um and and he kind of breaks this down into the fear of scarcity which is the climate change issue versus the fear of abundance which is the automation issue um and again like it's not that we're actually afraid of abundance it's that our tenuous relationship to the means of production puts us into a position of fear yeah um, it's a kind of a fear and he, he sort of like he quotes a lot of um a lot of writing on this kind of topic and I, I, i'm sure a lot of the audience will just be familiar with it by by being kind of uh you know online and paying attention to any of this sort of stuff but you have books like the second machine age you have like constant features in wired and mother jones and such on this sort of topic of like the robots are coming, the automation is coming, and the anxiety is kind of born from this like acknowledgement that like the the means of production will change and the kind of like mecha the mechanical base of society will change, but that under our under our current social relations, it's really hard to imagine that playing out well, you know. Right. Um, yeah, and I mean, one point he makes is that. Uh automation has increasingly been threatening uh, professional and creative industries that have seemed, seemed immune uh, to it previously. Um, and I, I think that, you know, in a very practical sense, that is one reason why this podcast has an audience, I think, right? That, that because these jobs have become precarious in a way they weren't before, like, you know, uh, people have a material interest in thinking critically about these things. Um, mm, yeah. And, you know, yeah. It's when, yeah, when um, when programmers start to worry about the possibility of their own work being automated away. Um, or when people doing, people who thought their jobs were safe because they were in marketing or something. Or... Uh, even 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 the very highest levels of like white collar work where like there's like some some like very big corporation or some sort of bank that now has an artificial intelligence on its board you know that like even yeah, the right. highest of all high flying jobs the ceo or the the board of directors level of um gigantic companies even that's not safe from automation yeah, and uh, I, I've, I've definitely seen, you know, working as a translator at times that, and even an interpreter at times, uh, which is a much higher skill job in some ways, um, that uh, automation is not like 
like it's not a distant boogeyman that is affecting the market it it's actually like materially depressing incomes now yeah in yeah. that sector like it is it, uh, it is it's already here it's already um, here yeah exactly um yeah and the, the other so I mean like that I think that's that's one we don't really need to explain very in much detail like a phrase spends quite a few pages on this in the introduction but for for our audience we all know this this is happening um and the other one the other big thing that we all know is happening is just ecological crisis that is um really bearing down on us now um stuff's getting a lot warmer and weather's getting a lot worse and we're kind of starting to see really worrying signs of like impacts on food supply and uh just like you know, beyond beyond just food supply, we're thinking about like access to resources at all, or like access to you know the ability to live near the sea is starting to be eroded in some places, and the ability to live further inland is being eroded. <laughs> it's like I mean, we're we're recording this in October 2017, and like you know, Puerto Rico has kind of been the poster child for what this kind of catastrophe could look like. Where, like, yeah, just access to all, like, essentials pretty much being wiped out, the food supply being wiped out after a program of neoliberal restructuring and the economy that had already devastated it. Um, so, like, this is... Uh, you know, we can see we can see one of these four futures staring us in the face. Um, yeah, pretty much right um, now. This this is stuff that's definitely happening now. Um, so Frey's kind of like he starts from these kind of like I suppose he he sort of starts by saying that he's going to be deliberately kind of vague about some of the details of the futures he's going to describe, and it's kind of a work of not really a, a work of deep kind of analysis and like serious kind of academic thinking, but instead a kind of work of, um, a work of imagination. It's, it's not quite futurism, but it's kind of like, um, a social science fiction is, I think is the way he puts it. Um, so that the kind of, he, he outlines these kind of like possibilities for the future and in stays in, in many cases, kind of deliberately vague about the details, but the, the axioms he kind of, pins down are he's just going to presume automation like pretty extensive automation like either and that's just whatever it happens to mean in your head you know and the other axiom is that uh yeah e economic ecological crisis and class power will be the kind of variables they'll be the dials we get to turn or like the, the dials that can turn in that kind of those kind of futures um and that we'll have this kind of like triple crisis of automation, automation crisis, an ecological crisis, and a kind of crisis in the capitalist system, where it becomes mm -hmm. just becomes less and less viable over time as competition for resources intensifies, and the kind of material base on which it's all built, the kind of labor relation, that gets just eroded away. Um, and he, he kind of has this kind of broad vision that we we kind of we can't go back to the past we can't really hold on to what we've got. Something new is definitely coming. And that something new will be the result of political struggle and choice. Like, we, we, we do have some kind of choice in how this plays out. 
Right. Yeah. He kind of describes it as this contradictory dual crisis. Um, and and it is pushing us towards making choices um, as as a society. Uh, absolutely. Um, so do you want to you want to explain what the four futures are the, and the kind of axes they're built on? Uh, oh, yeah, sure. Um, so there are uh, basically uh, these four futures, which are. Uh, communism, rentism, socialism, and exterminism. Uh, and these are the result of two axes of analysis. So you have the kind of social dimension of equality versus hierarchy, uh, and then the material dimension of abundance uh, versus scarcity, right? So, um, uh, the question of automation, because it's held constant in every case, uh, doesn't really figure into those axes. Uh, and so you end up with these four different futures of, of whether you have an equal society and whether you have a kind of abundant society. Right. Yeah. And those are um, those are the, the, the class, the class power and e ecological crisis as the kind of the, those variables that get to be tweaked. Um, yeah, I suppose before we kind of launch into the the first actual chapter uh, on communism, uh, which probably outlined, like, I think this this book is a little strange in that it's kind of lumpy in how it's laid out. Like some some parts, some paragraphs and pages sort of breeze by and sort of uh, paint more. They paint a picture in your mind of like possibilities, and then other other sort of bits bits of the book um, dig a little bit further down into concrete uh, theories or. Um, actual examples of the kind of stuff he's talking about. Um, and I think that that lumpiness will probably inform a bit of our, our discussion on this. Um, mm -hmm. Cause there's, there's kind of various ways in which things poke out a bit too much. And then there's other ways in which it kind of like kind of dips down a little bit into territory. That's maybe a little bit too vague to kind of grapple with. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think this book is really um, a classic of, social science or or futurism or anything like that or social social science fiction uh but i i think the real value is just in outlining these possibilities um and even though the particulars of the book probably could have used another edit or two um it's still interesting to go through each of them and we'll just try to sort of flesh out what he means by each of these categories and, and what we think about it, I suppose. Yeah, certainly. Um, so the first chapter is on, uh, it's titled Communism, Equality and Abundance. And it's, well, I mean, it's what it says. It's that, that intersection of the um, the graph where you've got a, a highly egalitarian society um, combined with r pretty significant abundance. Like in this, the way this future is laid out, it's that, the either the ecological crisis turns out to not be as bad as we think it would be, or some kind of miracle intervention comes along, like we invent a kind of new free source of energy, or we we really nail down carbon sequestration. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like what if we had fusion power, right? Like that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Right? Um, and he kind of does. He kind of does liken it to. To basically to Star Trek, in which th those two things are kind of true, right? Where in Star Trek, they have, like, just a mysterious source of power that never seems to run out. Mm -hmm. And they have, like, um, replicators where they can simply call up 
any any kind of thing they could imagine. And it, it seems that, that that society is just based on pure abundance of both energy and um, and material resources. Um, but a lot of this kind of chapter floats around the it kind of takes it kind of takes that that kind of idea as a broad basis and like you can you can kind of use your imagination to fill in what that technical base would probably be like like it'd be either robots making everything or um some kind of magic replicator thing but it, a lot of the chapter instead sort of focuses on the relationship between work and meaning um and tries i think tries to tackle the usual objection to fully automated luxury space communism which is that oh well if we get rid of work then what are we going to do all day yeah and won't everything just be meaningless right he he frames this chapter to begin with as a kind of critique of uh, kurt vonnegut's book uh, player piano and the arguments uh, against communism that are presented there um so I've I've never read Player Piano, but it seems that it's it's a book that's kind of about about some sort of automation stuff, but it's kind of like written from a, a sort of an older perspective, um, and that it's sort of like I think his critique is a lot of his critique is that it sort of misses out on some of the um, the problems of even categorizing some activities as work or not work. Like I think one of the examples he leans on is that like the character's wife performs a lot of emotional labor, which isn't classified as labor in that society and so doesn't get a front seat in the uh the story being a kind of um analysis of how a guy uh manages when his work is automated away or something yeah like phrase writes that uh the problem of automation turns out to be a crisis of male feelings um, <laughs> and yeah. i think that's pretty pretty spot on in a lot of ways because yeah I mean, it's really interesting because Vonnegut was a writer and like a working writer. Um, you know, he it's it's obvious if you read his books that like he had to really hustle to make a go of it. Um, and uh, and and yeah, like that is not like the kind of job that would fall into like an oh you go out there and you struggle with nature like you work the soil and you topple yeah. the trees and you know it's like, a very masculine idea of work. yeah but writing yeah. is something that is much closer to emotional labor and yet it's thought of in terms of that kind of masculinist um conception of work uh so so it's 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 very very interesting uh, example there um, but I think that the core point that um, that phrase is making is a very strong point uh, that reproductive labor, uh, as, as Marx would have called it, um, often or, you know, as emotional labor as is a part of that is often something that's considered kind of taken for granted. Like it's, oh, it's not considered yeah. to be labor at all. Um, it's explicitly taken for granted in the sort of capitalist system where capitalism is impossible without a parallel domestic world in which labor is reproduced without capital's kind of explicit input. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah, uh, if you take the perspective of this kind of patriarchal capitalism um, and then you imagine the introduction of automation, um, it seems as though 
everything humans do has been erased. But if right. you actually yeah. start from a perspective of, well, what does human society actually look like as a whole? And if you pay attention to the existence of work that is usually done by women, um, then, yeah, it's a, kind of a different picture. Um, you, mm, you, you notice that there's so. a lot more going on there than uh, what takes place in a wage labor relation in a kind of male dominated industry. Mm. Yeah. And it's sort of, I think, related to, um, I think it's it's a point that sort of comes up a, a few times later in the book that um, bringing in the externalities, because again, the sort of the reproduction of labor is kind of external to capital currently, and is is thus kind of a, a little bit invisible. We don't really take account of it, and like seemingly Vonnegut wasn't kind of woke enough to take account of it either. Um, but when you do start to account for the entirety of human experience, you get a broader picture, and you do, you kind of like no longer see. Uh, human sort of endeavor as just a competition of dominance, you start to see a lot more of the ways in which we spend like not, not in uh, like not insignificant amounts of time looking after each other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, if you really wanted to push the idea that phrase presents in the introduction, that everything is automated, you would assume that emotional labor would also be automated. Um, in which case you would have this very sort of strange, uh, like, you know, I don't know what it would even be, singularity kind of situation or something where we just have AIs that are somehow interacting with our, our, our personalities um, to perform or emotional like labor. Into the Matrix. I guess kind of. I mean, it's really it's really hard to say. I mean, like, you know, I think that's an interesting avenue for science fiction. But um, I think the assumption that phrase kind of works off of is that that portion of labor is not automated, right? Um, yeah, yeah, or, or at the very least, it, it that portion of labor, the kind of emotional labor, or uh, just I, I suppose non uh, non physical labor, non masculine labor, simply then could become the kind of venue in which we play out the actual lives we want to live. Like I think he, he even sort of says it directly that like. Once the sort of um, material base of necessity is taken care of, we can explore how to take care of each other. Yeah, and I think the the, the other issue that I think comes up in um, Ian Banks's uh, culture books is kind of like if emotional labor is automated, can you really even speak about it as automation anymore? <laughs> right, yeah. like the things that we we consider to be sort of essentially human in some ways fall into that category uh and so like it, it kind of explodes the entire notion of, of 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 an automated society where you kind of set it and forget it like the 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 the, the star trek replicator right is kind of just like you give it an order and it does magic right uh but if it's something like the automated task is to educate a child um, in, a, in a sort of a meaningful and holistic sense, then maybe maybe that's not really automation, right? Maybe that's something completely different. So that is a radically different that's, thing. Yeah. That's another possible avenue to think about uh, how this kind of communist society could be meaningful and make sense in some way. Yeah. So Fraze kind of talks about Marx for a little bit about the how Marx kind of outlined communism and socialism as kind of the process of overcoming labor and leisure. 
and that a socialist society would kind of rationalize and demo democratically control the realm of necessity, as in the kind of like realm of material necessities, in order to set up the realm of freedom as the kind of new stage in which uh, the actual sort of dramas of human life play out. Yeah, um, right. So it's it's this new stage of, of history where um, people are able to be all-sided individuals who develop all their potentialities and they, um, well, at least in every way that they want to, um, and they also uh, are able to find meaning in labor instead of doing a you know, kind of a day job sort of thing, um, and then going home and recording podcasts as something that is uh, actually meaningful to them as people. Yeah. Um, and he kind of then segues from there into kind of talking about, like, reminding us that at one point in time, gains in productivity, we used to, th we used to think about gains in productivity as being taken either in more pay or in less hours. So like um, uh, Keynes and like a lot of his contemporaries kind of talked about, they presumed that by now, by 2017, we'd be working like four hours a week. Mm -hmm. um, but what's actually kind of played out in the intervening time, I think Keynes was about it in the 30s or something. Um, yeah, I think he wrote that essay in the 20s or 30s. Um, okay. Yeah. And in the intervening time, we've instead kind of taken the gains in productivity, which have been huge since then, we've taken those gains as as kind of more compensation with which to buy more stuff. And that's kind of given given us this consumerist kind of culture, which, we, and, which has kind of blinded big us. big scare quotes there. Huge scare quotes, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I don't want more money. I want to stop working entirely. <laughs> that's my desire. I fucking hate work. <laughs> it's awful. Um, but I think this is a good way to kind of remind us that, like, we kind of should hate work. Like, nobody should want to fucking do this, you know? Um, or nobody, like, this, we, we should be able to decouple um, what we find satisfactory from what is necessary to exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this, this, a lot of this kind of, the early part of this chapter is to kind of just set up this kind of reminder that... You know, we, we, we can do post-work. We could even do it today, largely, if we were to kind of undertake the right kind of redistribution. Um, and to just kind of push back against that notion that we should, like, it, that it's natural to work, uh, you know, 40 or 50 hours a week. In the same way that, like, pre previously it was natural to work uh, 70 hours a week, but then we, we pushed back against that, got it revised down, like, we got the weekends off, you know. Um, and we could just keep going with that, like Keynes wanted to. And pre well, Keynes presumed we would do that and then end up working basically four hours a week, uh, like the Jetsons. You know, that's kind of the, the classic pop culture reference. Yeah, um, he just kind of assumed that the trends of, well, I mean, he didn't really get into the particulars as to why people had more leisure time. Like, he didn't, he didn't really talk about the labor movement struggling for this stuff, but... He did assume that there were like there was a relationship between productivity growth and uh, work time reduction that would continue to hold true into the future, um, and and obviously has not. Um, in fact, it's gone the other way, right? Um, right. Because, yeah. yeah. Um, but we, we we could go back. We could we could could go back to that way of thinking, and um, 
and actually aim for a post-work society, which is kind of what what this like communist society would be. Um, uh, I, I think a really interesting little bit is that um, uh, Fraze uses this example of like to to kind of illustrate how like social attitudes towards employment and such uh, really shape our thinking. There was this study of like the un unemployed in Germany who were like they were they were kind of getting towards retirement and they were like long term unemployed. So imagine someone who is maybe unemployed for three or four years and then hits retirement age and then flips over into being retired. And again, like Germany has this really nice kind of social security system where it's like you can kind of do that and it's uh, you don't kind of uh, end up on the streets. But that the study found that. Basically, on the day they became retired, their these people's entire outlook on life changed. That they were suddenly no longer anxious about their unemployment status, but like their material status didn't change. They were unemployed before, and they were basically unemployed afterwards. But what did change was the social expectation of employment. Yeah, it's. I mean, if if you've ever been through long term unemployment, this obviously should ring true. Um, I mean, I've I've been there. Um, it's a grinding, hellish experience. But uh, yeah, I have no expectation that retirement would be a grinding, hellish experience. That's not something I've seen from people who've retired, except for ones who, um, like some people, fall so deep into the pattern of alienated work that they are basically fundamentally damaged as people and cannot imagine existing in any way except for performing alienated work for someone else they can't they have they have lost the ability to actually work in the sense that marx describes right because it's it's completely possible to labor once you've retired and find that to be meaningful i mean of course there's still difficulties about having access to the means of production and everybody else in society uh, existing in this alienated regime of labor that you have to interface with. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, people do find meaningful work they can do in retirement. Um, and that opportunity is there. It's just a matter of whether you've managed to get through your working career as a still sort of functional uh, adaptive <laughs> human being who is able to yeah. be creative in some sense, except for when you like, even if a boss isn't telling you to do it, right? Yeah, that you haven't caught like capitalist brain disease by the end of your your existence. Yeah. Um, so one way of thinking about this sort of communist future is like generalized retirement. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know? Imagine yeah. if we were all retired. Imagine if I was retired right now. That'd be pretty awesome, I think. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, like, I, you know. I. Like, I used to be a grad student on scholarship, which is kind of like this. Like, it's, 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 um, it's kind of somewhere in between, it was my experience, was that on the one hand, you have the freedom to do what you want to do. But on the other hand, you still kind of experience the crushing guilt and insecurity that is associated with unemployment. Uh, so yeah, so because it's like everybody around you, uh, expects you to be a wage laborer. Um, but if that expectation was removed, then yeah, like, I mean, I, I think if, if I, I was in that situation, I would probably work about 20% less, but not much, 
you know, less than that because there's just so many things I want to do. <laughs> so, yeah. you know. I think that rings true. That rings true for a lot of techies, like where you kind of ask them, like, oh, what, what would you do if you could retire or like if you won the lottery, this kind of stuff. Um, and the answer is usually, oh, I would do open source all day or, you know, they would they would like or some, some combination of that and like play with their kids or, um, you know, go back to college and learn really do deep mathematics sort of stuff. Um, but this is a this is a kind of a theme that people aren't unaware of this as a sort of possibility or as a kind of desire. Um, it's just kind of getting there is the big question. And then phrase does kind of segue into that again, where it's like, um, how do we get there? Um, and he kind of outlines that like a kind of big revolutionary moment is probably not on the on the cards, um, because in uh, in the society we live in, that's probably just not not like desirable, like a big kind of, uh, kind of like, or I suppose violent kind of flip over into a new society. But it's also kind of like, I think from our understanding of the 20th century, it's also not, not very effective. Like it's, it's kind of not really possible to kind of have a, a big bang moment where you get rid of one system and then afterwards try to figure out how to slip into another one. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, um, the thinking about that that he's he's approaching the issue from is is a little bit um it's just informed maybe by sort of the sense in which uh armchair uh marxists in america may talk about these issues but <laughs> yeah you know like it's <laughs> It's not like these societies all around the world in the 20th century went into violent revolution just because they were like, well, what if violent revolution? I mean, it's like <laughs> it was driven by <laughs> these were, conditions. Yeah, yeah there were like there were a lot of inciting factors that led up to those revolutions. Um, and like, yes, it was an, an international movement that had trained professional revolutionaries behind it. Uh, but it wasn't like people just kind of voluntarily were like violent revolution, which is 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 in fact how some people on the left do think about this issue. Uh, uh, t tankies and such, they sort of yeah, yeah, yeah kind of think of it in these kind of terms. Um, but yeah, and the, the question still kind of remains of like how to get get to it. And he he points out um, the decommodification of labor as really central to this kind of transition. And it's, it's something that's already kind of central to uh, European social democracies right now. Um, the notion that like you kind of, you decommodify labor by decoupling um, the ability to survive from the act of actually selling your labor. And that basically means just putting in some kind of social security net, like your unemployment benefits or, um, or even looking forward a bit, a universal basic income. Which is another, it's another topic that comes up over over and over again in the book. It seems to be a feature in all of the chapters to some degree or another. Um, and the idea here would be that if you were to institute a universal basic income, you would be able to gradually erode the money economy as automation takes over, and more of the things that people actually need are not bought for money. They're just kind of the result of automation, and that. There would be kind of like a pressure, like a kind of a, I'm not even totally sure I understand this, but like a kind of uh, a pressure on wages that they would kind of normalize out to kind of flatten out with the basic income. And over the course of years, you would sort of transition into this essentially moneyless society. 
I'm not totally sure how that would actually work out, but I think that's the the broad strokes of the way he paints it well, are pretty compelling. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if you just if you think about it, um, I mean, the one key thing is that these provisions um, of decommodified uh, um, goods uh, they have to be universal, right? Um, that's a key thing because. If you introduce something like means testing as a welfare system so that you only provide uh, benefits um, or like decommodified goods uh, for uh, poor people um, or especially disadvantaged people in some way, uh, it actually is quite perverse because it um, encourages the overall uh, commodification of labor um, instead of actually working towards towards this removal so even though you can make the argument that like oh well uh providing benefits to the poor is a socialist good because it's doing something for society if you think about it for a second you realize like no actually we're just trapping ourselves in wage labor like that's so so the important thing is that these things be universally provided and if they are universally provided and uh, the other things in the economy are provided to some extent by the UBI, um, basically, the, the more things you decommodify, the less the money you have in the economy is worth, really, because, because you can't buy anything with it, really. Or there, you wouldn't you wouldn't need to or you wouldn't want to. Right. So it's like it's like um, uh, if you think about the the money you get as mainly being there to reproduce you as a human being to pay your wage bill as as something that you need to to survive and to buy the things you need to carry on your lifestyle then the more that uh those things become decommodified the less and less the money is worth um, exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah so like imagine the kind of future where um like housing is decommodified Food, or at the least staple foods, are decommodified. Exactly. Uh, healthcare, tr public transportation. There's there's just like a citywide free Uber equivalent sort of set up, set up, and it's all this futuristic stuff. Then what, what do you spend the money on aside from like really nice drugs? Yeah, um, right. And like bits of art and like Fabergé eggs and this kind of stuff. Yeah, you know? and that, that's that's kind of the scenario he's looking at. So like the things that you still can buy with money would be supplemented with UBI. And the things that were just considered to be of, of universal necessity and uh, desirability would be provided in a moneyless uh, kind of sense. Yeah, um, which just sound, it, it, it sounds nice. Uh, I think I would quite like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then the sort of part two of this chapter kind of takes a little bit of a diversion but it's it sort of fills in it fills in that last gap about like what what do you actually do in this society, and he he kind of outlines this kind of uh, he points towards the existence of status hierarchies separate from the capital and labor hierarchy, um, and kind of points out that even if you eliminate that kind of master hierarchy of capital and labor, you're still left with plenty of drama and interesting stuff to do. But the difference is that you won't die be from malnutrition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's it's kind of an attempt to to give some content to the idea of communism as a society, right? 
Yeah. Um, and there's there's a sort of example he uses of a a book uh, down and out in the Magic Kingdom by Cory Doctorow. I've got that right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. In which um, uh, the the author sort of portrays this like post scarcity society, but like uh, the book is like set in the 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 Disney's Magic Kingdom, but it's like a post capitalist version of it where people just hang out and party and that sort of thing. You've read the book, haven't you? Uh, yes, I did. Uh, it was quite a while ago, but uh, I did. I did read it in my first year of undergrad. <laughs> mm. What um, are your thoughts on that kind of? Uh, I don't know that kind of picture of how how society would still kind of be interesting and cool to live in. Yeah, I mean there there are. Um, I think it's it's. I think that uh, Doctor O's vision is still a little bit. Um, bleak in some sense uh because yes there are like character interactions that happen in the book but generally there's this kind of ennui going on and this society that is basically structured around like facebook likes or twitter uh follows or whatever like whatever kind of social currency you find in in a in a social media network um, They've got like a currency called Woofy or something. Yeah, which Whoopie, is kind of I, a, Whoopie, I think it is. Yeah, which is which is basically just like Facebook likes before Facebook likes were really a thing, right? Which is kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, hmm. yeah. It's uh, not it's totally keen on that. <laughs> not really great. Um, no, but then um, phrase does kind of compare it to uh, kind of more contemporary kind of phenomena like like the the. Bitcoin and Dogcoin, and where where Bitcoin is like a very financialized, like very serious person sort of cryptocurrency thing, but the the Dogcoin equivalent is this like really silly joke that's like only used as a kind of uh, liquid form of Facebook likes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, again, the idea of that being the kind of turned into, I don't know, I'm, I'm not I'm not completely keen on like reifying Facebook and making it a thing in the world or something like that. I don't know. Um, but I think it does serve a decent purpose as like, and it just an illustration that like, contrary to the usual um, objections, like life wouldn't be boring after we take care of all the our material needs. It would in fact be knocking out that lowest plat- part of Maslow's pyramid. And then that being the kind of platform on which the rest of history plays out with the nice kind of, uh, you know, guarantee that you're not going to starve to death. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's, there's probably some better examples out there of what that might look like, um, that we will discuss on this podcast. Um, so yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna do some episodes on the, probably on the culture novels, um, and how they kind of relate to these kind of ideas. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the chapter on communism. Um, I think it's pretty. It's pretty. It's pretty compelling stuff. If if kind of a bit, um, I, like I found I had to take a lot of notes to keep a lot of this straight in my head. Um, but the I think the, the core idea is compelling. That like a post work. If you take this kind of an egalitarian society with with abundance, then moving beyond the wage relation is actually possible and desirable and not boring when you do it. That's kind of a cool set of ideas. Um, so the second chapter is uh, rentism, 
the intersection of hierarchy and abundance. And this kind of like, this differs in that it's it's basically the same technical base where you kind of presume automation uh, that can provide that can provide for everyone, but that possibility is then stymied by a ossified class structure and the state power that reinforces that class structure. So you kind of end up with um, like Star Trek, but with DRM on the replicators is the kind of the picture that's being painted here. Yeah, it's it's everything is Adobe Creative Cloud, right? <laughs> Where like, yeah, you it's yeah, that, that is that is very much the idea he kind of plays with this this idea that like um intellectual property as a form of rent where you like control you don't really control things you control patterns and like ideas and software so it's kind of like even if you had replicators the question then is like who controls the software running on them and who controls the license keys to all the like uh you know the hamburger recipe and the the like uh coffee mug recipe on the replicators yeah, so we were talking earlier about how, uh, given abundance, uh, a lot of tech people would just spend their time working on open source. Well, this is a society in which uh, jackbooted police officers come and beat the shit out of you for <laughs> working on open source because it's getting in the way of rent extraction. Uh, yeah. yeah. God, I would love to see like a, a Judge Dredd plotline where he like smashes in the door of an apartment in one of these shitty tower blocks and just like guns down this dude for like hacking on the equivalent of the Linux kernel in that world. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Um. <laughs> uh, but this, this, I think this is a very real, it's a very real possibility of like a kind of, at least a temporary outcome for the future. Because like, if you kind of drill down to the real sort of baseline, the, the basics of this, it's like you, you do have abundance, but you have a, a ruling class that is absolutely obsessed with preserving its control over society. And it's like the the ownership of ideas on which that control is built. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I mean, I think it, in a way, it is more of a commentary on our present state of affairs than a sort of like comprehensibly viable society in the long term um, because the the regime of intellectual pro property control uh, over the last say 30 years has intensified and become more and more draconian uh, as as a way of establishing a hierarchy of states in the world system right like refusing access to scientific and engineering knowledge to poor countries is a huge uh, legal apparatus that has come about um, in the world. And so we can see in that sense how like rentism is kind of like intuitive and like and, and at a personal level, we can think of things of think of things like, oh, Adobe Creative Cloud, right? Or like, um, any other kind of like uh, sort of software as a service kind of uh, arrangements um, as just these kind of ongoing rent streams um, that uh, become all pervasive, right? 
Absolutely, yeah. And the one of the examples he uses um, is how a lot of like modern farm machinery is absolutely riddled with DRM, where like you can't repair your own tractor without taking it to the dealership and having. But the, the thing is, is just festooned with like little microcomputers and things to control everything. From the the actual sort of uh, mechanics of the tractor to like the fucking armrests are like they have a little DRM chip in them that like will refuse to to raise if you've like fiddled with the software, and that's that that feeds back into what you were saying that like exporting like if if you're a struggling third world nation you want to import tractors the only fucking choice available to you now is these these horrible fucking machines that like um, you can't really work with because they're so encumbered and like you you don't really own the machine. It's, uh, well, you own the physical machine, but, like, it's it's useless without all the software stuff. And, um, well, there was another thing, like, of, like, some car manufacturer or something that could, like, remotely deactivate the thing. Mm. Um, if, like, you were in violation of some, like, terms of service thing that you didn't even read, that they could, like, just satellite into the into the car and just turn it off while it's running, you know? Yeah, I think, I think there there's... There's this spread of the idea of um, property that you buy actually being something that you lease that has originated in the software world, uh, but is sort of insidiously spreading throughout the rest of life as uh, the so-called Internet of Things becomes more and more pervasive, right? So we, we kind of touched on this, but like... Um, I think that this this future is kind of overflowing with tension and contradictions. I think like it seems it seems very high energy and like skittish and like as as if it wouldn't hold for very long before it transformed into something else. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, yeah, it, because ultimately, if we assume, as phrase does, that automation is just like a given, um, then it really becomes kind of unclear um, how the system works because, you know, again, to go back to this example, Adobe Creative Cloud makes sense because if I'm using Adobe, Adobe Creative Cloud to produce commodities and selling them and then a port, using a portion of my revenues to uh, pay my rent to uh, Adobe to use their means of production, then that's a relationship that makes sense. But if we're in total automation, it's kind of like there's this problem of effective demand where it's like rent is just a secondary category. It's something that takes from production. And so if production is just kind of a given and it doesn't really involve any kind of particular class of producers, then how does rent even make sense, right? Um, yeah, like what what does a parasite latch onto if there are no living hosts? Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. Yeah, and a phrase kind of he tries to tackle this a little bit by kind of like that he he does bring this up as like if there's no need for labor, then how do people earn the money to spend on the DRM encumbered replicators? Um, he kind of points out maybe maybe creative work is kind of a thing but then again i don't know if you're like ais are writing music for you then eh. um lawyers for like companies because because this whole system is built around the control of ideas and concepts 
uh, like copyright infringement would be a huge business or, or, or like the the law- lawyering up to counter copyright infringement would be a huge thing like the kind of franchise wars in demolition man you know yeah absolutely where some somebody infringed on your license to the the i don't know the the coffee mug license or whatever and then there would be like just a planet full of lawyers or something um it's just scary i don't i don't like that yeah and there are actually some libertarian visions coming out or that have come out of Silicon Valley that envision a world in which basically access to everything is legalized in terms of property rights. Um, and and you would have this world of just kind of all pervasive uh, legal entanglement. Um, what an appalling hellscape. Yeah, no, it, it, it sounds like an absolute nightmare, but... To some very uh, strange people, uh, this this sounds like utopia. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> sort of the last category. Well, he he kind of brings up guard labor as well as another thing, which I think comes up in a later chapter as well. Yeah, it's like guard labor, and then the the kind of subsidiary to guard labor, which is management, right? Yeah, that's uh, yeah. The the guy holding the whip is the the, the yeah, basically guard labor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fantastic. But the last kind of point he brings up is um, that it might be necessary because like because this problem of effective demand, it might be necessary to kind of do redistribution via like universal basic income or something, and that that might be in this kind of culture that's not very egalitarian. It's like a hierarchical society. They might then be inclined to tie that to like meaningless make work, which which really sort of set off a little light bulb in my mind, like a really tiny dim one. Because um, I was thinking of a, an episode of Black Mirror. I think the, the episode is titled Five Million Credits or something. But the the fiction of that episode is kind of strange where it's like a lot of people living in this underground kind of bunker in like these horrible little cells that have like wall to wall, ceiling to ceiling advertising panels. And they seem to spend all their days like cycling on bikes to earn credits. Like it's like, it's like exercise bikes and it's kind of implied that they're generating power or something by doing this, mm-hmm. which doesn't make a shred of sense because like, it's like the thing of like people, people think, Oh, you could generate free electricity by putting hamsters on wheels and then hooking up generators to the wheels. But then, it would be cheaper. You do the math, and it would turn out it would be cheaper to burn the hamsters. Right, <laughs> it would right. be more efficient. So, but this this got me thinking though. What's probably happening in that society is that it basically is post um, post scarcity, but there's this bizarre and fucked up class structure that is ab- absolutely obsessed with perpetuating itself, and so it ends up in this highly irrational local optima where like an underclass of people are kind of locked in a bunker to pretend to generate electricity in exchange for credits, which they then spend on like skipping ads on their like wall sized TVs. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like, um, if you think about, um, the way that, uh, a lot of online video games have gone, um, where you have these kind of uh, busy work um, activities, uh, grinding activities that you do in order to earn an in-game currency, which you can spend. So the relation there is 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 uh, kind of um, meaningless. Um, it's it's just a 
activity for the sake of doing the activity. Like you're like all you're only doing this work in order to um, fulfill some kind of purely formal uh, requirement, right? Uh, and uh, and and then you get some kind of meaningless in-game currency uh, that you can use to unlock things. Um, and and that's kind of what labor might look like in this society. Like, oh, what if we just like gamified everything to make an underclass who were busy playing clicker games all the time? Like, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, in a in a practical sense of like what's actually going around uh, these days, it did seem to me that um this kind of society might be something like what Y Combinator is envisioning with their UBI experiments. Um, yeah, that that they're they're trying to create some kind of uh, like minimum subsistence uh, level existence for uh, people um, who are who are the victims of sort of disruptive automation. Um, and therefore, they can create a society in which those who own the means of production um, are able to achieve kind of unfathomable levels of wealth on top of that. Yeah, because like these are the same guys who talk about like the 21st century. They, they, in the 21st century, they want to see the first trillionaires emerge. And it's basically... See, they, they see U, UBI, like the universal basic income, as a way of installing a floor so that they can remove the ceiling entirely and just, like, have this, like... And it's not, it's not, it's not impossible to sympathize with, because, like, they'll be like, oh, well, at least the baseline would be okay. But, like, it's probably not going to be very good, because it'll be like this horrible society where this minuscule elite have just, like, incredible wealth, while, like, literally everyone else including the former middle class, live in basically capsule hotels with, yeah. like, uh, just, like, nutrient sludge as their, their only meals because that's... The, the society would be tuned so that, like, the basic income is not anything that you could actually really live a satisfying life off of, except for this upper upper class that are able to live in just, like, grotesque opulence. Well, and, I mean, as Frey says here, this is a society that is about power relations, right? And and when you look at a society like that, where you have people living on a subsistence UBI and then trillionaires on top of that, you have to remember that money is a social relation and it doesn't represent simply a an access to like very basic um, necessities for survival it also represents social power right so if if you have a society it's like oh well you know like everybody's kind of getting by they're doing okay but at you have trillionaires on top of that that's just a representation of how much more powerful those people are than everyone else and and absolutely those people would be uh likely uh to abuse their power in a very toxic way Oh, absolutely. I mean, if, you, if you, like, and you don't even need to imagine much to kind of get to that conclusion. Because just look, look at how like absurdly cruel and fucking degenerate the current rich are. You know, like, and then then extrapolate forwards. Um, 
Like if 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 the the ruling class seem just like callous, awful people today, that's just going to get worse, <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's kind of like what we've seen um, in terms of uh, gentrification in a lot of world uh, cities, so-called world cities. Uh, where people are pushed out of the city so that empty houses can replace them. That's the kind of relationship you would see in a society where people are living on a UBI and there is a class of trillionaires uh, on top of that who are doing whatever whim uh, suits them. So that kind of, what we've just talked about there, I think sets up the final chapter. But before we get to that, we have the penultimate chapter, which is titled Socialism, Equality and Scarcity. Um, I think this one's really interesting because it's it seems pretty realistic, as in like it's it's something that could... Ver- like I, th- I think we've just come off of rentism, which I think we've, we're probably on the same page there, that it seems like that society is too loaded down with contradictions to really survive very long. But this, this one, the socialism one, does seem like it could actually really happen. Um, and kind of phrase outlines it as an egalitarian society which must work together to rebuild its relationship with nature. And it's kind of predicated on uh, equality, so like the, the lack of the kind of um, capitalist uh, labor and wage relations, but also scarcity, where either either the automation stuff never really follows through fully, or it does, but we're just faced with such incredible ecological crisis that we are left counting every single molecule of carbon dioxide that's emitted. And that places a hard limit on what we can actually do economically. Yeah. Yeah. Even though we have the potential to produce a lot more, we don't because it would be suicidal. It would kill us. Yeah. 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 Um, And he kind of starts with like, um, yeah, there's scarcity, uh, which is kind of a theme all throughout kind of like capitalist relations anyway. But um, particularly kind of like he, he points towards uh, Malthus, the guy who was talking about the uh, the guy who predicted that, oh, if we keep if population keeps growing, we'll all starve. He kind of turned out to be wrong because, well, I mean, sort of wrong, at least in the in the in the time frame he was talking about, because uh, he failed to kind of account for advances in agriculture and such, which meant that like Malthus saw some material limits and then as history played out, the limits moved, like the goalposts moved. Um, and the same thing is true for like, that's not just for food, it's like for energy. Uh, so like you once once upon a time we had um, uh, economies based on coal and then based on oil. And then we had this idea of peak oil, which we're kind of past now. But then ev- even if that energy stuff turns out to be limitless, you're still faced with this ecological problem that like if there if there just is a hard limit on how much abuse you can put on the planet, then it kind of doesn't matter whether Malthus was right or wrong in those kind of like terms, because like you just you butt up against a brick wall eventually. Yeah, um, yeah. And the question then becomes, how do you provide for everyone whilst also skirting through this crisis and not like tipping it over the edge? Right. Um, yeah, and it, it's a kind of um, it's a kind of rationing regime, right? Um, yeah, it's quite austere, and it's it's kind of like this um, this regime in which like enormous change is required. Like you need just like radically overhauled energy energy infrastructure. Food production has to change. Manufacturing has to change radically. Um, yeah, a, a good a good way to think about this example, I think, is to look at um, 
Cuba in the 90s. Right. Um, where they uh, drastically overhauled their infrastructure in order to deal with the deal both with the collapse of the USSR as a source of um, aid and a trading partner and also to deal with the ecological realities that were happening in Cuba at that time. Uh, so, you know, they they really kind of pioneered this sort of um, uh, ecological socialist approach. Um, and, and I think you can see that on a global level uh, in this kind of scenario. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and like I, I think phrase um asserts that this 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 all requires efficiency on a scale that is so much further out than what free markets can actually provide like it's it's when when you need when you need absolute efficiency in distribution and in supply chains then kind of free market stuff is kind of out of the question because it's too it's just too wasteful um, right and you're into the territory of kind of needing central planning of some kind um to kind of ensure that you can produce and ship all the food without tipping over the balance into just like ecological catastrophe. Yeah, and I think it was like uh, Min Chi Lee who was uh, who wrote a book uh, fairly recently about how you know we kind of need a world socialist um, ecological regime uh, you know sometime by like the middle of this century or we're pretty much done for as a civilization yeah and um in case the listeners haven't picked it up that's kind of what we're all about (laughs) (laughs) on this show (laughs) yes we're we're big into this this kind of idea um yeah so it's it's like this i think it's a really compelling sort of vision of like like a relatively austere kind of future but one in which we do commit to ensuring that basically everyone gets through it yeah, that that's the really the thing here is like, what's the upside to this scenario? Well, the upside is equality, right? Like the upside, the upside is avoiding mass genocide, like that. Yeah, which is a pretty sweet upside, I think. Yeah, that that's like, oh, like, oh, actually, now that you put it that way, I, I guess that this is not so bad. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's like you you pose that kind of question to people, or like you you kind of like exp- explain it in these terms, and it's like. Okay, like how how do you feel about I don't know five and a half billion graves? Like, oh, you don't you don't like that? Okay, well then get on this train. <laughs> you know, we're, exactly. We're, we're going for the we're going for the socialist future then because like, yeah, the alternatives are substantially worse. <laughs> That's <laughs> right, know? and um, yeah, and so like this this regime was kind of supposed to involve like um, national service for environmental and disaster work. Um, and then yeah, he, he kind of points towards um, towards the end of the chapter. He sort of says that like life in this future could be as as boring as simply uh, plugging in your ration uh, tokens into the replicator and then heading off to work at the civil conservation corps. So yeah, basically, um, you could uh, spend your ration in the form of like a UBI um, buying things from a consumer market. Um, And that would give you some consumer freedom, um, even though you would be working under a material constraint. Um, 
Yeah, yeah absolutely. Like the, um, and I think like phrase kind of raises at the the very back of this the possibility uh, of using markets as like a technology of planning. He kind of decouples he decouples markets from the kind of like uh, capitalist way we know them. And kind of uses the example of, um, I think, uh, the city of Los Angeles uh, did a parking kind of scheme where um, there was all like smart meters in the roads and in the cars and in the parking spaces. And the price of parking was dynamically adjusted uh, according to demand. And the key difference there is that it wasn't a market that was used for the planning of production. It was used as a way of planning consumption. Uh, and it was transparent because it was owned by the city. It didn't have it didn't have the usual problems that people object to, such as like the market anarchy of piling up luxuries while basic staples aren't produced. Um, it was a nice sort of transparent kind of user friendly market. Or I suppose another example would be if you were to simply nationalize Uber. You know, yeah, where they have their uh, they have their like what is it like rush pricing or. Uh, uh, yeah, so be, that's similar to this uh, parking scheme that he was talking about, and uh, and I mean the, the essential thing to note here is that everyone is getting the same income, so this is a matter of choice as to uh, where you want to park, how convenient you want your parking spot to be, or when you want to catch a cab. Uh, it's not a matter of how much you can afford, right? Like, it's not like, oh, I went into first class seating uh, because I am a member of the bourgeoisie. It's I went into first class seating because I prefer being uh, more comfortable than spending my money on other things, right? Yeah, um, and the the plane the plane is empty otherwise in that's in that scenario. Um, yeah, it, it, it it's it's a really important point that like under our current system, like markets can be oppressive because. Six dollars to one person might mean a very different thing than six dollars to a to a rich person. Um, whereas in this kind of scheme, you'd have the markets are for for limiting consumption; they're not for kind of the the price signaling to kind of uh, allocate the resource that we're kind of accustomed to. Yeah, they're not just a vehicle for representing class power. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's a pretty cool chapter. It's um, it's. It feels like it's probably where we're, where it's a good, it's a possibility for where we'll end up, where we can make the choice to not, not genocide everyone and work out a new relationship with nature and to kind of resituate ourselves within the natural world. And not, not in a way where we back away from it and like pretend that we can exist outside of nature, but just acknowledging, yeah, we, we have got to find a way to actually survive now and one that has minimizes impact and kind of lets us be inside the world without uh, either us destroying it or it destroying us. Yeah, and it, it's it's kind of important to note that this is not necessarily a permanent rationing regime, uh, right? Um, it, it could be something that we do to try to clean up our situation here on Earth and, and get into some kind of livable uh, way of life. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are even though like the resources of earth are obviously finite and we need to respect the incredible value of the ecosystem that we have here, which is unique as far as we know, um, certainly we could, uh, you know, make use of the 
incredibly vast uh, resources in space uh, if we had um, a society that was able to kind of get that together and distribute the rewards in an equitable way. So like building space, space colonies and um, exploiting the like incredible, almost unfathomable mineral wealth of the asteroid belt um, would be ways that we could transition from like a more socialist kind of scarcity situation to a more communist abundance kind of situation. Mm. Uh, it's not and the, ruled out in this kind of scenario. Yeah, exactly. And in, in, in that kind of transition that you've outlined, the thing that changes is the material base, but the thing that remains constant is the social dedication to egalitarianism. That's that's the key thing. And like if if for the listener, like if, if you are into this idea of like, you know, asteroid mining and colonizing space and doing all those sort of thing and then getting into these good futures, you do need to keep in mind that we need to change our social relations to be much more egalitarian because otherwise we're going to end up in a pretty awful future, which is the topic of the uh, the final chapter uh, titled Exterminism, Hierarchy and Scarcity. Uh, and in this one, Fraze leads with an example from the film Elysium, where you have like a space station with all the rich, like uh, ruling class just living in this kind of really amazing sort of utopia. But it's it's on this little isolated space station and like the surface of the Earth is just this ghastly fucking reality for the mass of humanity. Um, and it's kind of he uses that to illustrate this kind of situation where you have the rich living what is basically a communism of the few. And while they have like automated away the need for labor, and then they ultimately conclude that because they don't need the labor anymore, they should probably just kill them and, you know, exterminate the poor instead of bothering to, uh, you know, be human and nice <laughs> it's pretty grim <laughs> yeah yeah um that's that's the scenario presented by phrase it, it's not exactly the plot of elysium but um yeah uh, absolutely it's it's very very grim um and uh yeah it, it's kind of like the point he makes is that the capital labor relation is a contradictory relation um and is one that creates social conflict. Uh, however, it is one that is based, based on mutual necessity. Um, the workers need access to the means of production, and so that's what they get from the capitalists, and the capitalists need workers to work the means of production. However, if the capitalists do not need workers to work the means of production, that relationship is broken apart um, and in conditions of uh, scarcity, uh, it may make sense uh, for the capitalists to simply get rid of the superfluous former workers. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, and he sort of he sort of kind of like quotes from um, an author, E.P. Thompson, I think was writing in 1980, um, on Notes on Exterminism, the Last Stage of Capitalism, in which he sort of explores this like increasing militarization of capitalist production. And then like, so if you go back to Marx, you kind of get this idea that uh, different economic relations uh, in different part, uh, you know, parts of history produce different social relations. So the hand mill gives you feudalism, while the steam mill gives you capitalism. 
But according to Thompson, the sort of military-industrial complex, or like a society which produces a lot of murderous equipment, kind of inevitably gives you an exterminist society. Um, the, society the social relation is kind of informed by the, the economic base on which it's built. It's it's that uh, it's that old saw about uh, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Yeah, uh, exactly right. Which we're seeing a lot of with like yeah policing in this, particularly in the states right now, where um, you know that you've got a lot of military hardware being distributed to police uh, districts, and then when um, you know, when big, huge crises kick off, like so, like hurricanes hitting major cities and such, the police don't really have um, tools or training or equipment to deal with those crises constructively, such as flood defenses and evacuation and rebuilding. But what they do have is a pile of machine guns. Yeah, they have like APCs and, you know, uh, machine guns and. <sighs> SMGs and stuff like that. Yeah, and it, it, I mean, it's the militarization of the police force because of a surplus of military production, right? Like, it's 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 like, yes, of course, it is about policing the population and oppressing the population, uh, but it's also about creating, like, sort of um, uh, escape valves on military production surplus. Like, oh, let's just, like... I don't know what we can do with all these weapons we produce for the Iraq war. Let's just give them all to the cops, right? Um, yeah, it's it's pretty pretty insane <laughs> the way that that whole system of production is set up. Um, yeah, and Fraze kind of talks about like uh, the um, like a kind of an enclave society, which he, he, I think is quite of a there's quite a nice little line in here about it being a kind of an inverted gulag where. There are islands of wealth, like guarded and walled islands of wealth, strewn around a world of misery. You know, um, which I think is quite a, a neat way to see it. I think we see that we see a lot of that in our like science fiction already. Um, you look at the kind of world of like uh, like Deus Ex in particular is a kind of a decent example of like these these enclave societies that are kind of walled away from all the kind of horrifying devastation that's outside them. Um, it's very evident in the new Blade Runner film, too. Uh, well, um, don't spoil that, because I, I can't see it yet, because uh, the 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 rentier uh, regime that we all live <laughs> under has forbidden access for me uh, to this film in Japan until the end of the month. So <laughs> I think I think once you've had a chance to see it, we might have to do an episode on it, because um, a lot of the themes of the rentist and exterminist societies really show up in the kind of background fiction of that film oh yeah um, i can imagine um so yeah we'll, we'll, we'll i i would be into that uh we'll look forward to that listeners <laughs> that's gonna be good yeah so like but fr from the he kind of then draws this line from enclave to genocide and he kind of uses um an example I, I hadn't really considered before but like the uh the occupation of palestine where up until the 90s, Israel relied on Palestinian labor as a cheap labor force. But in the 90s onwards, they got in a lot more cheap labor from Asia, which made the Palestinians irrelevant. And that opened the door for more of this kind of hyper-aggressive foreign policy that they had. Um, and I, I hadn't really thought of that before. I was like, no, that does make sense. It's like once, once you've made a laboring class irrelevant, 
either through automation or through finding a different laboring class to um, do the dirty work for you, then you're kind of free to just crank up the exterminist rhetoric, which is kind of exactly what happened uh, with the intensifying assaults on Gaza. Yeah, and I mean, it kind of reminds me of some of the critical work being done by indigenous scholars in Canada um, about like the relationship that indigenous people have had to capital um, in North America and many other places, I suppose, um, has not been the uh, wage labor relation. Um, it has been about and because it has not been about the wage labor relation and it hasn't primarily been about um, the seizure of land and access to land, um, I think you know, that has facilitated the extermination of uh, indigenous populations in North America. Um, and, and, you know, in, in a sense, exterminism is something that has been inherent in capitalism from the beginning, right? Right, yeah. If you rewind to imperialism and colonialism, like that's the, 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 it, we've already seen these kind of worlds in which, because like the, the way the way phrase kind of phrases it is is that um, it's a world in which scarcity cannot be overcome except for for a small elite, um, and that's kind of already been the case throughout a lot of our history that we kind of like to forget about, you know. But uh, it's there. I mean, that like we've already had plenty of kind of examples of people just kind of rolling up to a new sort of land and deciding, you know what, fuck these people, they're not actually human, uh, you know, wipe them out. And that's, like, I think we, I brought it up before, but, like, if you if you consider how fucking callous and, and, and ugly and fucked up the rich already are today, and then imagine more automation and more ecological crisis leading to more and more conflict... Um, like this, this is a, a natural conclusion for to that where they just decide, you know, what we're we're, we're tired of these these poor's, uh, you know, taking up all the space, and we're tired of like spending money on the guard labor to keep them in line. So let's just let's just fucking nuke them, you know. I have this kind of vision of like tactical nukes being used against columns of refugees is the kind of the the image of exterminism in my mind. Um, yeah, um, it's, it's very ugly. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think the image of exterminism that we can see staring us in the face right now is um, what's what's happened to Puerto Rico. Right. Um, just uh, terrible uh, neoliberal policies being enforced on the island and then ecological catastrophe destroying access to food supply and basic provisions and then just the rich uh callously like leaving people to suffer and die um and it, it's it's kind of um something you don't have to look very far to imagine you know no it's um it's it's not it's it's not far away you know um <laughs> it's it's kind of right on top of us um and as well as like the fucking the the rich leaving leaving the population to die, you've also got the likes of Elon Musk swooping in like a fucking vulture to privatize the energy resources on the island, or like to pr privatize the energy uh, infrastructure. And Google have fucking swept in as well. Yeah, it's it's sort of this next generation disaster capitalism, right? Like 
uh, they just kind of show up and are like, well, you know, the stolid old non-tech uh, manifestations of capitalism haven't helped you out, but we're here to help you. We're going to do this amazing uh, project, and the only thing you have to do is sign here on the dotted line and put yourself in <laughs> endless uh, <laughs> debt and servitude to us in the future. Uh, it, I don't know. It all feels very much like a one of those old cartoons where you sort of have the, the fox like uh, shows up and uh, <laughs> has a big evil grin <laughs> on his face. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> getting into like the chicken coop. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> oh, no. Um and like we've we've kind of already seen that as well with like um, Hurricane Katrina all those years ago, where um, the capital class took that as an opportunity to just fucking privatize all the education that in the cities that were affected. Um, like all the schools are gone now, we can make them into like horrible private schools that are like much much worse than uh, than what was there before, and just kind of like yeah, it's this like capital capital never loses, right? Like un, under under this system, they're the guys who always get ahead, regardless of what happens. And especially when disaster strikes, they get even more stuff captured in their uh, their clutches. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, you you just look at um, well, there's so many examples. It's it's almost hard to choose one, but you look at what's happened to the wealth of. Um, uh, black families in America uh, since the 2000, 2008 crisis, and you look at what's happened to the wealth of the richest people in America, or even just the the global capitalist class has been profiting off of the uh, American real estate market and so on um, since the crisis, and it, it, the the disparity is obvious. Um, and that's again, it's that kind of disaster capitalism as Naomi Klein has a. Uh, Hmm. described it it's it's predatory and when you when you extrapolate that predatory sort of in the behavior and then add on extra more and more crises you just get this like really awful awful behavior uh, at the end of it all um yeah it's grim yeah it's, it's very it's a very grim uh vision of the future and uh you know, counterposed to that that socialist picture, um, it, it it kind of makes sense of like why that image of socialism is still attractive, even though it is a is a future of scarcity. I mean, one of the big reasons why I first got interested in Marxism was actually. Um, when I was in my master's degree, uh, I was reading uh, Thomas Friedman's, uh, in many ways, terrible book, um, Hot, Flat, and Crowded, and just looking at like the picture of climate change he was presenting and realizing to myself that, you know, even though he doesn't say it in as many words, like this is a recipe for genocide on an almost unfathomable scale and it's kind of like that's not 
something i want to see you know like (laughs) we we have a a sort of increasing capacity to change the world through technological means uh but we seem to be stuck on a path of driving ourselves towards this this terrible terrible exterminist future um and 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 i think it's essential that we do something to avoid it yeah, and and that's that's something that that key differentiator is the um, class relation. Like, as as long as we maintain this class based society where one class very clearly dominates over the other, um, that domination will just be amplified by whatever kind of material changes occur. Um, in the rentist future, we see how more and more automation just makes the kind of wealth disparities bigger and the kind of like uh, control of ideas and, and patterns and such is more and more calcified. In the exterminist future, we see the kind of just like outright violent kind of oppression being amplified as well. Mm-hmm. That's right. And uh, yeah, uh, it's, 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 it's pretty stark. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so with that, uh, Frey's kind of, he wraps up with a small concluding section. Um, I think the, the main sort of takeaways from that are that the, the, the future isn't inevitable. There, it's, it's going to be the outcome of some kind of struggle, like a, a political movement or struggle. And the thing is that like, if, if we continue to kind of sit down and do nothing, then the political struggle will continue to be what it has been for the last 40 or 50 years, which is the sort of right-wing interests and the capital interests just asserting their dominance uh, largely unopposed. Um, yeah, and I mean, you look at the sort of capitalist solutions to poverty and so on, like you look at, well, the recent study that was published that shows a trend of the wealth of black families in America trending to zero. Um, you see uh, the long-term totally ineffective responses to, uh, you know, poverty in the global South that the capitalist class has advocated, um, just don't really make much of a dent at all. Um, and, uh, like you can't leave these disparities to the capitalist class because at the end of the day, they're not interested in resolving them. They no, just like, why, want why would to they reinforce the hierarchy that exists. Yeah, it's it's in their material interest to reinforce that hierarchy and keep going. Um, yeah, and th- this is kind of what we're we're into is like bringing back this kind of mat- material analysis analysis of history and of the society we're in. That like uh, you you can't you can't trust these people to do the right thing. Um, the only way you're gonna have the right thing come about is through a social movement that agitates for the right thing to be done. Right, um, right. Phrase also kind of wraps up with this kind of like cautionary sort of warning that like, even if we do end up in a kind of utopian society, the path towards it could be pretty brutal. Um, history tends to be, uh, you know, tends to not like care very much about its victims and that that's been true all along. And it's kind of reasonable to expect that to still be true even if we do transition into a kind of uh, egalitarian society of plenty. 
Um, and there's also paths between these futures. That's not. It's not really a guarantee we're going to end up with one of them and stick with it. Um, I think we we noted that the rentist future seems pretty unstable and is likely to kind of would be likely to topple over into some other kind of a thing. Um, but also, it's worth considering that if we if we eventually ended up in like you can imagine ending up in a the future that's described by communism, but it's it's arrived at through exterminism. Because in the exterminist future, you have uh, a communism of the few for the rich. And then if, if the few eliminate the many, then the few become the many. And de facto, you end up with an egalitarian society, kind of. Which is definitely worth keeping in mind that... You know, it's it's not like a it's not like a roulette table where where the ball is going to settle into one of these pockets and that'll be it. Um, there are transitional possibilities between the various futures. Um, yeah, some some more horrific than others. Oh, absolutely. Because <laughs> <laughs> we were talking earlier about the transition from socialism to communism, but you know, there there are other possibilities um, yeah. where socialism would be a temporary austerity. Um, that would lead to to better things. Um, and Fraze then kind of wraps up with, I think, something that's worth quoting. And he, the line is that we can't go back to the past. We can't even hold on to what we have now. Something new is coming. Yes, yes, yeah. And I think we can all feel that right now. There's a there's de- there's a definite sense that the the status quo that we know. Um, and the, especially the kind of financialized neoliberal form of capitalism just, just can't hold like it, it's, it's, it's already creaking under the contradictions within itself. Yeah. And one, one thing, um, that was kind of in vogue, uh, in the nineties when you had this conver- uh, convergence of information society theory and, um, social democracy, uh, was this idea that education would be a bromide that could resolve these social contradictions, right? That that somehow you could get an education and then that would bootstrap either your country out of a, um, a uh, disadvantageous uh, international uh, trade position uh, or you could bootstrap yourself out of poverty uh, through through having education, through having skills. But um, you know, one big thing we've seen is that automation makes a mockery of that, and even without that uh, <laughs> automation factor in play, there there's a lot of other factors that kind of show that it's not a sufficient response in any real meaningful way. Of course, education has many virtues, and um, as an educator myself, uh, I'm not against it, you know. Uh, but uh, I don't think it's a social cure, you know. No, uh, no, we, um, we need more fundamental change. We do, yeah, and we, we need fundamental and multifaceted change. And at the very mm-hmm. least, we need to be directing people towards really thinking about both the material base and the kind of social relations. Because as, as we've seen with this kind of uh, grid of futures, you can have uh, a future of abundance. Uh, you, you can have like mi- different possibilities in a future of abundance depending on what the social relations are, and the same goes for the futures of scarcity. 
Um, and we've we've really gotten out of the habit of thinking about social relations. And I think it, it's it's like largely down to this kind of end of history idea where um, it just looked like the capitalist system had simply won outright and it would be impossible to replace. So a lot of a whole horizon of imagination and like possibility really shrank down in that kind of uh, end, end of the century kind of period. Um, but then it all turned out to not really work, right? Like where we, history's back on, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's showtime again. And we're kind of like left with a bit of a, a dearth of imagination and thinking when it comes to contemplating the future. Yeah, and I think that's why this article was, or sorry, the, the 2011 article was so impactful uh, when it it when it came out because it did have some imagination it did did present some possibilities um, and uh, that may seem a little bit more mundane in 2017 uh, but it was uh, quite uh, notable in 2011. Yeah, um, I mean, like t- 2011, I, I'm actually kind of surprised at how early that the the, the initial uh, article came out because like this that. This this way of articulating these possibilities for the future is still really kind of fresh and compelling, um, and you you don't see a lot of it considering the the thing's been out for like six years. You you would have kind of expected it to have a more of an impact on kind of general kind of thinking on the left, um, but I think it says a lot then that like it was it was still necessary to actually publish a book in twenty sixteen, uh, a full five years afterwards before before it really and and it's still then gathering an audience from that. Um, so I think like in conclusion, like a pretty compelling little bit of, bit of literature. Um, so long as you come at it with the, like, not, not one, not expecting it to produce very hard hitting analysis of a lot of stuff, but to kind of just, um, provide, uh, jumping off points for thinking about these kind of topics. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, as I said before, I think the, the real value in this, this book is just the presentation of the um, different schema uh, it offers. Uh, I think that, that that's a useful tool for thinking with, and uh, and I think it's valuable there. Uh, I like to think of the book as um, offering offering up that schema and then asking the user to just use their imaginations largely, um, and it's not it's not very hard to kind of let your imagination wander and like really explore these spaces. Um, yeah, I guess that kind of wraps it up for four futures. Um, is there anything else you want to cover that we didn't get around to? Any any glaring gaps? Uh, no, I think we've no. we've pretty much done it. I think we've got it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for listening. Uh, if anyone's listening, um, <laughs> we'll be back in two weeks with. I think what we'll probably do is we'll we'll pick an article or like a paper or something something lighter to maybe pick over and use as a jumping off point for some uh, for some discussion. Um, in the meantime, we've got a Twitter account. You can find us at GIUnitPod. Um, it turns out that General Intellect Unit is far too long to be uh, yeah, a username <laughs> on Twitter. Um, you're probably listening to this on a podcasting app of some kind, or you're staring at a website. There is undoubtedly links on there as well that can get you to the various places we are. Um, Yeah, I guess that's it. We'll see you in two weeks for some more discussion on, I guess, the general cybernetic Marxism that we're kind of into. Yes. Fabulous. See you then. Bye. Bye.